0: Hello, welcome back everyone to the New Books Network in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bridget Wallace. I'm a graduate student at Lehigh University. And today I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Andrews Bond, who is an associate professor of history at the Ohio State University. She specializes in history of print and public opinion, The Social History of Ideas, The Cultural History of the Enlightenment, and the French Revolution. Dr. Bond is here today to discuss her very excellent work, The Writing Public, Participatory Knowledge, Production in Enlightenment and Revolutionary France, produced by Cornell University Press 2021. This book has also won the David H. Pinckney Prize from the Society for French Historical Studies. Welcome, Dr. Bond, to the French Studies um,
1: podcast channel. How are you today? Thank you so much, Bridget. It's a pleasure to talk with you. I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great.
0: So um, since we've come out of these unprecedented times, this new terminology that everybody's using now, I wanted to know, first of all, how are you? How are you? How are you doing? How has the last couple of years been for you? Um, Did it affect um, your research, your plans, your goals? Just how did you handle it, especially as a historian?
1: Oh, thank you so much. Um, I'm well, thank you. Um, It's been a a a challenging two years, a few, few years now, certainly. Um, and it certainly has affected um, my my research and my teaching. I've moved to teaching um, for the most part online, which has been a new uh, experience for me in terms of learning about um, pedagogy in all kinds of new ways. And so that's been a really uh, challenging, but in many ways, rewarding experience to be able to meet students um where they are in this new, um, uh, yeah, in this new COVID context in which we're we're all living. Um, for my research, I think it has impacted the way I approach um, the projects that I'm designing um, now, and um, has um, kind of shifted some of the ways in which I'm, I'm thinking about, yeah, my 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 next projects. But maybe we can speak to some of that later on in our discussion.
0: Oh, most definitely. Yeah, I think it's shifted historical research for all of us. So let's begin by understanding or getting an idea how you came upon this book, The Writing Public. I mean, how did you become... A historian of enlightenment and public opinion. That sounds fascinating, especially in the era that you're in. So can you discuss a little bit your research interests and your expertise and just how did you how did your book come into existence?
1: Thank you. Yes. Um I've been interested for a long time in how people experience and process moments of really intense change. And for me, the 18th century and France in particular was such a rich terrain for studying that kind of experience. Um, And I came to this project out of an interest in the cultural history of the enlightenment and of the revolution. Uh, These were the kinds of books I was reading uh, uh, a lot as an undergraduate and then as a graduate student. And that was what was really um, kind of captivating for me. This uh, approach is what some historians have called the social history of ideas. And I was interested in what was going on in people's heads. I wanted to understand how they made sense of these really dramatic changes that were wrought by this age of revolutions. And we already know a great deal about the origins of the French Revolution. And so from the start, I was not as interested in explaining why the revolution happened. Um, Instead I really wanted to understand what the experience of living in the 1780s was like. And so that guided my uh, initial approach to this, this project. I began this project with reading the first daily Parisian newspaper, Le Journal de Paris. Um, And I found so many letters from readers in that particular newspaper, and it was really exciting. Uh, So that was my initial foray into this project. And then I I continued it by going to France and studying other newspapers that published in a similar format. Um, These were all these one-sheet, four-page general information newspapers, um, and uh, many of them had letters from their readers. The topics they covered really varied, um, and the letters to the editor really um, were were wide ranging in their subject matter. Um, What they seem to share, though, are some of the key themes that uh, really crystallized in in my, my book around a sense of optimism, a desire to participate in society, um, a commitment to useful knowledge. And above all, I think they really work to situate their authority to speak um, to one another. And that for me was what was really uh, exciting a- across these letters. Um, did you want me to speak a little bit about my own graduate training and that kind of thing? Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. That, that's a great,
0: um, um great asset graduate training, especially for up and coming historians as myself, um, especially in this new age of research um, and the new parameters that's going on. So yes, please um, speak about it.
1: Great. Okay. Um, So I completed my PhD at the University of California, Irvine, where I worked with Tim Tackett. Um, I really couldn't have asked for a better mentor. Uh, His knowledge of the revolution and of the 18th century more broadly is is so expansive. Um, And he was so generous with his his knowledge and his expertise. Um, I also thought he was just really generous and wonderful about sharing his time. And he was willing to read my work at various stages in the project. And that for me was really transformational, both as a a writer and as a a historian in training. Before that, um, I completed my undergraduate degrees at Arizona State University. And while at Arizona State, I took a seminar in the history of Paris with Rachel Fuchs. She was also a wonderful mentor, a wonderful historian of France. uh, And she encouraged me to pursue graduate school and guided me through that process of applying and and, um, um, pursuing a graduate degree. So I really had the the great privilege of working as an undergraduate and as a graduate student with excellent historians who were leaders in their fields, um, who were deeply committed to training future historians. I also have attended public schools uh, throughout my education. And and for me, it's really a privilege to be here at Ohio State and to be kind of continuing on in that tradition of um, supporting and encouraging students at uh, large public universities.
0: I'm, I'm listening to you. And Tim Taggett just jumped at me. Um, I'm actually reading his book, When the King um, Took Flight. And I read your book first before I'm reading his book. I'm taking a class in French Revolution. And I thought maybe I was a little off track but now I do see similarities between the two books. I can see that you were a student of his. I just like the idea that historians are breaking away from the big event to understand why did people move? How did these traumatic events, enlightenment philosophies, political transformations, destruction, corruption, all of this, how did it change the mentality? How did it alter the mentality? Um, and your book, I just want to jump ahead a little bit to your metho- methodology, portion of it, you went through over 6,000 letters to the editor. Okay, let's start there. How did you just go through six, over 6,000 letters to the editors? And my biggest um, um, question that I have for you, how did that open up the voice of the marginalize not even marginalize the voices of those who we would not necessarily hear because they were obscured by the bigger voices that we hear about all the time um can you just give talk talk about that put that in the air because i think what you have done is just so fascinating. It goes against what I'm reading, um, reading archives against the grain. You know, I would not have imagined historians sit down going through over 6,000 letters of the, to the editor to be able to come up with composites of the actors, how they interrelated. But I'm going to stop there and let you start there, and then we can get into this.
1: Well, thank you so much. Um, those are two really um Uh, Important questions for the way I approach this project, so thank you so much for that. I'll I'll, um, approach the the question of methodology first, and then I'd love to speak about the writers. They're one of my favorite parts of this project. Um, so first, uh, the primary methodology I used was uh, the close reading of, of thousands of letters. And it, it was a great deal of material to, to read through and work through. Um, but I really had a, the privilege of being on a Fulbright Fellowship, and that allowed me time. Uh, and time in the, in the primary collections where these sources are held made such a difference. It enabled me to read and, and work in a sustained and on-site way. And I think for me, that was very uh, foundational. To the way I approached this, this project. Um, I think being in the archive was a very important part of my research process. Um, while conducting the research for this book, I did uh, extensive reading and note taking, but I also took photographs as I went of these letters. Um, and my first goal in in taking and tracking those photographs was just to keep track of them, right? So uh, for people who are doing um, you know, taking photographs on a short archival trip, um, there's just the challenge of how do I make sure I know what I have? So my approach was to um, set up an Excel spreadsheet to keep track of which photo identification number corresponded to which newspaper the date, the issue, the page number, etc. So I could properly cite um, an Understand what I had photographed. As I went along, I also began tracing other information from those letters. So I just added more columns to this spreadsheet. Um, I tracked, for example, the signature styles of the letter writers. If they sign their name, I included the name of that letter writer. Um, so I started, you know, keeping track of these um, characteristics in the letters. Uh, And because I had recorded that information across all of the letters, I was able to notice patterns and relationships that became more clear over time. Uh, So the more time I had with these sources and the more sources I was able to examine um, and analyze, the more... Uh, patterns begin to emerge, and so the figures and tables that I have in my book are designed to give the reader a sense of some of these patterns that I was able to identify. Uh, so, for example, um, I have um, an image that explains uh, the newspapers that were republished from other newspapers. Who, who was publishing con- content from whom? Um, I also have a figure that, that discusses the social background of the letter writers. Um, How often letters were signed or unsigned uh, in these newspapers, these kinds of things. Um, And so for me, uh, I think that counting could become a very useful approach for giving a fuller sense of the history of these newspapers and of their writers, and that's why that was an important component for me. I think it's important to note here that it doesn't reveal the whole picture, um, but for me it was a vital component and one that was very helpful in terms of understanding what was going on in these newspapers. Um, Now in the intervening years of finishing up the project, more of these newspapers are becoming digitized. Um, so, in the intervening years of, of finishing up the project, more of this information has become available digitally, and I think that's that's great uh, because it enables more uh, researchers to be able to work with these newspapers, and I think that that's important. These are really rich sources that have a lot to tell us about 18th century life. I was able to incorporate a small amount of that digitized content into my book as well, um, and this enabled me. You know, when I was in France, I worked primarily in Paris, and then I did a, a series of archival um, trips in the provinces, and that was very um, essential to the the final shape of the project, but I couldn't go everywhere. So a few of these sites that I wasn't able to visit have now become digitized, and that too was a really helpful um, um, affordance, right, to be able to access some of these newspapers I hadn't been able to to um, look so at. So let me ask there. you
0: um, something about digitized versus archival did you get more of a sense of the source when you actually were able to look at it feel it and see it in the archive in person versus looking at it online Um, was the image blurry were you able to transcribe it did it give you the same sense of, I don't know, this euphoria I think that historians get when they come across a primary source that is just oh so valuable. Is there a difference or is there a way that you balanced out your archival um, resources versus your digitized resources and putting it a uh, uh, future spin on it? How can historians, especially new historians, because that's a conundrum that a lot of us are facing, How do we balance out the archive versus the digital? Because now everybody's saying, oh, it's digitized, it's digitized. But I don't know if it's the same sense of euphoria that historians are looking for. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'd be happy to speak to my own experience. Um, Most of my work was completed on site um, at the National Library, I also worked at the Arsenal branch of the National Library, and this is where many of the actual um, physical copies of these newspapers are, are held and are consultable. Um, and that, for me, was a really rich experience. I think there's nothing quite like being able to, to sit with those sources and to um, examine them in person uh, before you. Um, I think the other thing that's really valuable here and was valuable for, for my own project was that... Um, well, I did live in Paris and, and work primarily in the national library and those two main two branches that held these newspapers. In particular, I made several trips to the provinces to work in departmental archives and in municipal libraries and in university libraries. In Poitiers, I was also able to visit an antiquarian society's library. Um, one of the things that was very important for me was to not only understand these newspapers, but also the um, documents, supporting documents that might fit around them and that might inform them.
0: All right, Dr. Vaughn, so so how did you balance though, when you finally ended up pulling some of your sources in through the digital um, uh, method, how did you balance those two things And did you feel the same way when you were using a digital source?
1: Thank you for that. Yeah, so um, primarily uh, my sources were collected on site um, at uh, the National Library. I also worked at the Arsenal branch of the National Library where many of these newspapers are held. And so uh, for consulting the physical copies of these newspapers, the Arsenal was really um, foundational to this project. Um, I also had the, the privilege of an entire year on a Fulbright Fellowship to live uh, in France, and I worked primarily in Paris. I lived in Paris, um, but at the same time, I was able to make several trips to the provinces uh, to work in departmental archives and to examine newspapers that were not held in the National Library, at least not held there in full. So I um, went to a a series of of provincial centers that were important for the affiche, and I worked while there in departmental archives, in municipal libraries, in university libraries, and in the case of Poitiers in particular, I also um, was able to work in an antiquarian society's library while I was visiting there. Um, I think these trips made the project richer, the findings more robust, and uh, one of the reasons was because in the process of examining what I what I went there, knowing I was look for, looking for, I w- also was able to examine um, documents that might inform that particular source. And so for me, that that process was only uh, really feasible once I was on site. And if I I found that uh, I needed to go to another location in that city, I was able to, able to do so. Um, I think uh, I'm really grateful to all of the uh, wonderful librarians and archivists who helped me with this project. Talking with them was really vital. They know the collection so well, uh, and they were able to recommend related sources or to, to pose questions that encouraged me to think through um, some of the connections I was I was um, beginning to form between these sources. And so that was really essential. Um I also think that working in so many locations was very important for the formation of this project and for me as a historian because it enabled me to meet with French historians while I was there. It also enabled me to meet with um, historians of France from around the world who in some cases happened to be working in those uh, libraries um, at the same time. Um, these conversations made a, a big difference, uh, both for the way I think about my my. Uh, Self as a historian and the way I was working through these sources um, during that year in particular and in the, the years since. I'm also really grateful, I should say, to the, the French historians who included me in their seminars while I was in Paris. And I think that, too, is a, a situation that's very hard to to have if you're not on site. Yeah, you know.
0: that's good. Okay, so let's get into the book. I'm impressed about the actors The writers, the readers, the um, these were craftsmen, farmers, men, women, wealthy, poor, middle class craftsmen, but they created this environment of I'm going. I felt they created an environment of trust. It's like they would write these letters to the editor, but they trusted that they will be read first, that the editor will publish them secondly, and thirdly that any type of response would come in a civil manner. I don't I, I didn't get the idea reading your book that they were worried about incivility and in the response to the question. I mean they were very passionate, but that idea of respect of someone else's word, is so prevalent. So, so describe the, the actors. We want to know the actors in this story, and how did they create this bond between them? Create this space, um, this this new historical terminology now of spaces, spaces that, as Mark Block say, are consist of human interaction. And I think the writing public is definitely human interaction through the written word. So I'm going to let you go. Just just talk about the people, the actors, and just how you were able to um, put them in a play, essentially, and let them do their thing.
1: Thank you so much, Bridget, for that question. Um, some of the earliest and most persistent questions I got when I was um, beginning this project were about the people. Um, and for me, they were always a really fascinating component um, that I wanted to know more about too. Um, so when I began talking about this project with uh, with other historians, one of the first questions people would ask was who uh, was writing these letters. Uh, A second question I often got was, um, were these letters merely the invention of the editors themselves, or are these actual people? Um, And so as I began reading these letters, I wanted to um, understand who, who was involved in this conversation. I recognized the names of some of the letter writers, so I knew that some were written by by known figures, some were uh, actual people, but I wanted to be able to speak to all of who um, this larger body of of participants were. Um, and so, um, as I was reading these newspapers, I began tracing uh, the signature styles of the letter writers. Now, not everyone signed their name when they wrote to the newspaper, but about half of them did. Um, others signed, either didn't sign the newspaper, which I think is another interesting um, uh, element that I discuss in the book. Um, some use their initials and some used pseudonyms. All of these signature styles, you know, serve particular purposes that that I discuss in the book and I'd be happy to talk about later, but um, for these that did sign their names, and um, uh, approximately half of them signed their letters and then about a third indicated their professions or their social position. And I thought this was really important. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So um, among these names are some figures who left a larger historical record. So there are, for example, agronomists who published pamphlets. Um, there were ac- actresses. There were minor officials um, who wrote to these newspapers. Um, what I found interesting, though, what you've um, alluded to in, in the question, uh, um is that the letters are not all from people who are well-known elites. And the range of professions and backgrounds among the letter writers was really remarkable to me in its expansiveness. Um, And I think this is noteworthy. Uh, Historians of the Enlightenment have focused a great deal of attention on the participants in that Enlightenment. They've often found that many enlightenment spaces tended to be elite and closed ones uh, where those within the group had a great deal of power to, uh, to um, decide upon who would be able to participate in that discussion. Salons are one example right, where uh, one had to be invited, one had to know the right people. I think writing a book is another example, uh, another form of participation in the Enlightenment that required access. One needed some some access to that network um, and to resources. Book publishing was costly. Uh, one had to navigate licensing and censorship. That wasn't simple. Um, and so the letters to the editor, I think, are really important um, and, and uh, distinctive in comparison because they were remarkably open and surprisingly low cost. Uh, so for many of the writers, this is their only foray into print. And so in chapter two of the book, I provide an up-close look at who these writers were. Uh, some of them are people you might expect. Uh, I found there are a lot of men from the liberal professions. There are a lot of of. of men who were working in medicine and the law. Uh, But what I was struck by and what what you uh, noted too is this participation alongside them of so many other figures. There are farmers and innkeepers, artisans and women, um, people from a range of backgrounds with a range of perspectives. And I think that juxtaposition of such voices really sets the letters to the editor apart as a really unique uh, and surprisingly expansive site Of 18th century sociability. Um, And with that, right, with this idea of sociability comes certain uh, expectations about how one participates, as you also noted in in the question that you posed. And so for me, this was one of the really exciting components is on the one hand, this um, opening up of who could participate in the conversation. And um, alongside that, a certain set of expectations about how that conversation would be carried out.
0: So as I have two questions, I'm going to ask the first one, Um, when they wrote the letter to the editor, if they didn't identify their profession, would the letter still get published? That's the first question, because that question then leads me to ask you, um, during this time, there was a significant population of free people of color, And I'm asking you specifically because I work with people of color. So, and my question to you is, is there a way that you would be able to pinpoint A, if they participated in this media, in this platform of writing letters to the editor? If they did, were they published or were the editors able to um, um, uh, identify that maybe this letter is from a free person of color and we don't want to establish it. Especially I'm um, I'm really looking especially at the three years after the revolution that you talk about when the declaration of the citizens of rights of men comes out and the national assembly is all about equality for everybody. And, you know, they were in, um, they free people of color were appearing before the declaration, I um, mean, before the national assembly to for, to pre- present their declaration. So I'm just interested in that juxtaposition, um, how, um, class I would say, how they identify class, if they identify class, or if the editors just saw a letter, took the letter, read the letter, because free people of color will be asking or stating different um, ideology, talking about liberty, talking about citizenship. And if the um, editor saw words that had incorporated those ideals, would they not publish the letter um, because of fear of the National Assembly or fear of the, um, ancient ancient regime. So, um, can you talk a little bit about that dynamic? And am I asking the right question too? Is that something that was, is discernible from your research?
1: Thank you for that question. Um, I think the one of the things that was so interesting to me about these letters that were published and the, the editorial role here is we have very little record, uh, archival record of how the editors went about making their decisions. Um, I looked, I looked everywhere I went for uh, evidence, right? For papers from these newspapers. Um, that's very rare to find. In some cases, we do have those archival records if the newspaper was published during the revolution and it was shut down. Um, So in those cases, we do have these wonderful um, archives of of those editors' um, decision-making and and records. In most of the cases of the affiche that I studied, there is very little um, manuscript evidence to go alongside uh, these newspapers. what I have, I've included in the book, and usually what that included was you know, a few letters that were published uh, in that newspaper, or perhaps some letters that were written to the editor that didn't appear uh, in that newspaper. And the exp- there's no explanation of why one was published and one was not from an um ar- archival end. So instead, what I did is I looked at the um, the editorial notes that, uh, these newspapers often included. And so the editors would often write a note after the, the letter to explain something about it. Uh, they, they might say, you know, this public letter is published anonymously, but I know the identity of this person and they are trustworthy or they are a person of social standing in our community. Uh, and so in the book, I talk about some of the ways in which we can use these editorial notes to make sense of um, how the editor um, conveyed to their readers uh, their decision-making process. I think the other thing that's really important to note as well is that um, while approximately half of the letters were signed and approximately a third indicated their profession, that includes a, a lot of letters then that we were we just don't know who wrote them. Um, did I find instances where people identified as a, a free person of color? I didn't. Uh, and this was one of the disappointments of the project for me too, right? Is that sometimes there are uh, experiences that we know um, were um, being lived out in France at this time that this newspaper did not um, kind of give us a, a full window into what was going on and how free um, uh, people of color, how women, how people who perhaps were not uh, as literate might have made sense or participated in this newspaper space. One thing that I do think is important, though, is that uh, they may well have been present in the anonymous letters. And I think that it's important to think through what um, kind of work using a pen name or using initials or publishing anonymously, uh, what kind of work that might do for the letter writer, right? I think there's ways in which one could still participate um, and voice one's one's opinion uh, and enter into this forum, right? This virtual forum of exchange and debate uh, without fully revealing one's identity. And that could be a strategic choice for for many. Um, so um, it's hard to say definitively, right? Because there's that, that um, they aren't signed. But is it possible that they're there? I think, I think it's possible. Yeah. Um,
0: um, so then that leads me to ask. So we talk about Um, you talk about knowledge of the enlightenment, um, in the letter writing, the language of the enlightenment, the language of the philosophes, um, did you, cause I remember you wrote about how the letters actually turned into more of a commercial bent, um, when um, they would write a letter about um, farmland or something, I think you were talking about they kind of turned more personal matters, something that was pressing them. But it's this idea of community, especially um, members of the community that you are think are not paying attention to what's going on around them. Did you see really high instances where? And um, enlight- um, Enlightenment language was being interpreted, was being used and being understood um, or put into their own personal interpretation to try to push through all the transformation and shifting that was going on in this period in France.
1: Thank you. Um, yeah, I think... Um... Yes, I think that this book has a lot to say about the, the lived experience of the Enlightenment, the way the language of Enlightenment might have been used by a wider um, uh, cross-section of society. What I will say is that um, one of the delights and challenges of working with these newspapers was that the letters to the editor concerned so many themes, um, and I'd love to give you a sense of, of some of those themes that I pursued Uh, People wrote about all kinds of topics, um, really from the spectacular to the banal. And so I tried to capture that uh, in in the book, especially in chapters four through six. I focused on a few arenas in these letters uh, that I thought were really significant for the newspaper. So in chapter four, um, that chapter is on popular science, and so I, I discussed uh, the letters that concerned hot air balloons and electricity, the ways in which both um, the uh, um, the people who saw themselves as experts in these in these um, new approaches to scientific inquiry positioned themselves, but also the ways in which a wider kind of uh, community tried to participate in that and launch these experiments of their own. Chapter five is on agriculture, and it's really concerned with how writers tried to encourage the adoption of new crops and techniques. Uh, Chapter six is on a style of philanthropy that was uh, called bienfaisance, and this emphasized fellow feeling, an idea of helping others out of a sense of empathy, uh, out of an ability to see um, oneself um, in the experiences of others. And so these three chapters concerned major issues in the newspapers. And the broader theme that these three chapters um, really concern is about the ways that writers made their case. And I do think in some cases they reference living in an age of enlightenment to do that. But I think there's very little consensus among the writers about what the enlightenment was. Um, so for for my own um, understanding, I think what was helpful is rather than identifying identifying a certain set of uh, ideas that encapsulated enlightenment or positions that encapsulated enlightenment was instead to think about enlightenment in terms of of approach or or a way of um, of, of thinking about knowledge and thinking about uh, one's um, access to knowledge and participation in its formation. Um, so the letter writers consistently situated these newspapers as a site where useful information could be gathered and could be shared. They explained that they were writing because they wanted to be useful, Um, and they made claims about their authority to speak in this venue uh, as they tried to get the editors and other readers to listen, right? Part of their goal first is just to get people's attention um, and then to encourage uh, the the editor to publish their work because it serves these other uh, social aims. I think this was really new and that's important as well. These newspapers that were written in this style became prevalent around 1770. They lasted at least until 1791. Um, And until 1789, these are censored publications as well. So um, that's important to to note as well as there were certain kind of limits that the editors adhered to in terms of what they were uh, able to publish before the revolution. but I think because these newspapers are becoming so um, popular and so prevalent across France, the writers to them were experimenting. They were devising ways of talking to people they had never met. Uh, and they were um, kind of galvanizing the language they thought would be convincing in order to, to make their case to the newspaper.
0: So how did they – I write a letter to the editor – how were they gauging the response to the letter? I obviously would be if someone writes back into the newspaper referencing the letter, but how else were they gauging response? Was it through um like social interaction in the local um gathering places or in the church? Or was the newspaper a topic of conversation and like the cafes or just right on the farmlands with the different farmers coming together? Um, so how were they gauging how people were reacting to their, um, the letter that they had written? Uh,
1: how would the individual writers do that?
0: Yeah. I mean, how, if I write a letter to the editor, say I'm 18th century France and I'm going to write a letter to the editor. Okay. Um, what would I be looking for to see, hmm, did someone read my letter or did it help someone? What were they looking for? How were they gauging that, um, process?
1: That's a great question, and for the the vast majority, I you know I don't know. Uh, In many cases, this is the the only um, uh, source that we have about this particular figure, and so it's hard to know exactly what was going on there. Uh, What I do know um, is that in some cases, people did write about writing a letter, either in their own correspondence um, or in their diaries. And so, when I was able to, I, I identified some of these cases. So. Um, I discuss a, a bookseller and diarist in Chapter Two who uh, did this very thing, right? Wrote a letter, uh, transcribed a copy in his diary, um, and was very excited to see it published, right, uh, under his own initials. Uh, so even in that case, right, we have a situation where he didn't sign his full name in the published letter, uh, but nevertheless included that a copy of that letter in his diary and explained his own uh, motivations there.
0: Yeah, I like the story of the lady that it was her routine in the morning with her tea to read the newspaper and then sit down and write her letter to the editor and her newspaper got um tea spilled on it and she wrote the editor saying, Oh, she needed to copy the newsletter it was her thing and then the editor and it went from there. Um, I thought that was um I thought that was very interesting to understand that even in 18th century France, or people had a routine of reading and digesting news or information um, or the written word. Let's just say the written word in and of itself. Um, and it brings me back to the news junkies of today, You know, my sister, she's got to have her CNN first thing in the morning, you know, things like that. But um, I was thumbing through the book last night, and one thing that really hit me really, really hard, and um, I would like for you to talk about it a little bit, is the section on mental health. It's in um, Chapter 7, where they talk about um, the... um, um, Pinnell and his work on mental health, um, and how the uneven emotional and physical impacts of the revolution. Um, I was very, very struck by this dynamic of mental health, especially relating to the times that we are in right now where mental health has become the number one priority, I would think, for a society that's undergoing pandemics, shifts, changes, political ups and downs, and it mimics what was going on here, transition, political ups and downs, um, pandemic. I just wanna know how important Then do the letters become, especially when they start to reference people's physical well being and mental well being? Because it seems like you shift, you really kind of shifted it with this section with Pinnell. I mean, I read the letters and I get that, but this seems like now all of a sudden they're seeing that this is a platform where they can speak honestly to the person about the individual's well-being. And this is what we need to look at. And the old regime, um, what they the social limits, the form of chronic illnesses is something that you really don't see too much in 18th century um literature about physicalness, about the individual's well-being. Um can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's really important, especially in today's um, what's going on today?
1: Sure. So, uh, Pinel's letter is just one of these very um, kind of moving and captivating windows into how people were processing the revolution. Um, as I said, kind of at the start, one of the things that was so important for me in writing this book was to understand the experience as of of people uh, who weathered this storm, who who moved through this. Trim, um, Really dramatic, and in many cases, traumatic experience of the revolution itself. And revolutions are exciting; they're moments of, of hope, of possibility. But they can also be very scary. Uh, and his letter, I think, captivate or captures that that sense uh, and that experience as as he was speaking about um, his own experience, but also his patients. Um, for that final chapter of the book, it's really about this experience of revolution. And in that chapter, more broadly, I'm interested in tracing the period from 1789 until 1791. And one of the things um, I found in examining these newspapers is there's, before the revolution, this really rich burgeoning of letters to the editor, really between 1770 uh, and the start of the revolution. it's just this dramatic growth uh, in participation Um, that slowly in these newspapers starts to get edged out during the revolution. And so I was curious about why that might be so. I think part of that had to do with This fascination with news, as you said, um, that people really wanted to be able to follow what was going on in the revolution. And as censorship fell away in 1789, it became more possible for these newspapers to follow events. Uh, And that's something we really don't see as much of before 1789. So timeliness um, and interest in politics, these are things that begin to emerge in the press really once censorship falls away. I also noticed uh, that on the one hand we have continuity. There are uh, is an interest in many of the themes and and processes that are explored in the previous chapters, and that persists at least until ninety one. Um, But alongside that, a lot of this information uh, in the letters to the editor between 1789 and 91 concerns politics. Um, So there are members of the constituent assembly that write to the newspaper, that use it to communicate with their own um, constituents, their own um, communities in the provinces. Uh, There are people who use it to advocate for change uh, in uh, the assembly itself or to raise an issue for the public more broadly. But I also noticed that as we approach 91, um, and especially the autumn, like late summer, early autumn of 1791, that the participation and publication of letters to the editor begins to drop off. Um, And part of my question was why. I think, you know, Pinel is a really interesting uh, example in this way. But more broadly, I think that there's much more concern about... um, about reputation that begins to emerge and the costs of participating in these newspapers begin to change. Uh, And so at the end of the book, I um, am interested in exploring that at least as one, um, uh, what I think is a compelling explanation for why uh, people began to turn to other venues, right? And they had other venues, they had other newspapers, certainly, that more closely aligned with their own political ideologies by this point they had the clubs uh, and revolutionary clubs become a really vital space um, for uh, political discussion and for implementing change more directly than perhaps the were ever able to do. So as these new, um, and for those in Paris, right, participation in the, in the sections became a really important way to implement, um, implement change in one's own community in a really direct and grassroots way. So I think, one of the things that becomes um, evident is that these newspapers help us to understand a great deal about the transition into the revolution and its early years. Um, But letters to the editor, while these newspapers in many cases do continue to publish for years after this, uh, the letters to the editor at least dwindle in 1791. And I I think that the the costs of participation had had changed in really important ways.
0: Yeah, I think, once, um, even though censorship dropped off, I think factionalism started to occur, especially with the creation of the political clubs, as you say. Um, and then I also think with the increased participation, participation in the province areas um, on the coastal towns, too, because now it seems like they had a direct... Um, connection to the National Assembly because they were able to write the petitions and take them straight to the National Assembly through their deputies, you know, march right in front of the National Assembly. So that would kind of make sense of why the letters to the editor dwindle because before the revolution, that was the platform. But what's interesting is that the writing public, as you call them, create a platform that the deputies and the representatives in the National Assembly were able to use to talk back to their constituents. Um, This, what I call two-way street, something is created in one aspect and then shifts and transforms. So it's definitely change over time and as change is happening in France, we have a platform that's already established. Now let's use it and send it back information back to the people. So you talk about this information um, network. Um, I want, can you expand information network for me within this within the context of what you're writing about?
1: Sure. So, in in many ways, I think this leads us back to um the um the woman who is reading the the newspaper on her terrace. Uh, so let's go back to that, to that vignette, and let's go back to um in my book. I think I explore this most, uh, in chapter three when I'm really interested in, uh, tracing the ways people were reading these newspapers. First, I think it's important to note that these newspapers were not read in isolation, and one of the that I found very interesting about them is that many of these letter writers would indicate what they were reading alongside or what they were responding to in their letters. Uh, Many uh, chose to write a letter to the editor, to their local um, affiche, um, their local kind of information news sheet that I'm I'm examining in this book, Um, but they did so um, in relationship to another newspaper or another book, and they cited it. So they would indicate, "Oh, I was reading, you know, this other newspaper, and I wanted to bring that information to you." Or, um, as I was reading this book, I had this thought. And they would they would share it there, or they would use a book to kind of undergird their their own argument. And so, um, what I found is that um, this process of, of citation was a way of signposting, of indicating the other information that was read alongside these newspapers. And it's vast. Um, so it included uh, more specialized journals. It included other um, kind of general information newspapers. It included, in some cases, uh, clandestine newspapers that were published outside of France, right? So we have this this bridging between the... Um, uh, the um, kind of literary underground, so to speak, this, this um, network about which we know so much, thanks to the work of, of Robert Darnton and many, many others right, who have talked about uh, smuggling and and um, uh, the, the ways in which people in France were reading information and in newspapers and books that were not censored. Um, so that becomes possible to glimpse to some extent here. Um, the other thing, though, that I think is important is that um, the the books and the newspapers also show us that people weren't all reading the same stuff. That there's a, a widening and a, a broadening in terms of the perspectives that that people were uh, bringing to this newspaper. And so I think in that way too, it becomes a really interesting conversation, right? Because rather than cohering around a shared set of texts. Um, it's almost as if there's um, signs pointing out, right? This larger kind of community of, of, of people invites in a larger community of, of books and newspapers. Uh, there are some common names and I indicate them, but uh, I think the, uh, one of the appendices also gives a, a list of um, the books, at least in a sample set of the, of the letters, which gives a sense of the range. And I think that was important too.
0: Yeah, the diversity and it's actually showing that um people were seeking information. They they weren't living in a bubble. They were actually seeking information and it wasn't all political. They were seeking social, um, agricultural, professional, even um family, you know, what's going on with my family? How do I do this? But I want to go back to one thing. Um, it's this public sphere. And you bring up um, Horgan Habermas's model of the public sphere. Um, you outline his limits, and you state that he raised questions about the impact of print culture on the formation of public opinion. And he said, including his radicalization in the 1780s, that has remained central to the cultural history of the 18th century. Um, I kind of got the sense that his model was maybe your foundation for your primary argument um, in your book. But I wanted to know how you, you used his model to influence how you extend and expand the public sphere within the context of public opinion and how that public opinion informed France's pre-revolutionary information network, created a platform for post-revolutionary representatives to speak back to the constituents. It's, It's this boomerang effect that I think is so interesting, but I think it's based in this idea of the public sphere. Um, and I just wanted to know, and you referenced it, and I'm thinking to myself, she referenced this for a reason, and then I feel that you extended it, his argument, took his model, extended it, and expanded in order to incorporate this idea of the writing public, public opinion, participatory knowledge. I know that's a lot, so I'm going to let you break it down however you want to.
1: Thanks, Bridget. Um, Yes, uh, Jurgen Habermas's structural transformation of the public sphere really has loomed in this field uh, since its publication. Um, and so I think that theory can be useful to think with. Uh, and in the introduction to my book, as you said, I provide a sketch of the ways in which the model of the public sphere has been used and interrogated and and reinvented by historians, um, historians of France, certainly, but um, really historians working in a a wide range of geographic and and, and, uh, chronological contexts. So my book is greatly informed by the work of historians of 18th century France who have written with this theoretical model in mind. And so that's Really, the primary reason why I spend time in the introduction exploring Habermas's influence um, and and his theoretical model. Uh, ultimately, I think my book is not about testing Habermas's theory, uh, and so I don't spend as much time in the book itself with this theory as a um, as a you know agent that drives what I'm what I'm observing. Um, I think what might be just as interesting or useful uh, is to consider the letters to the editor as an early form of social media. They're a virtual space where people interacted to share and debate ideas. And I think this is um, particularly um, salient or... or. Um, uh, Apt because at the time that these newspapers were being um, were beginning to publish when they were coming into existence, the local general information newspaper was still fairly new. They emerge in a few cities in France in the 1750s, but it's really only after 1770 that they take hold and and become prevalent uh, across across France. So this was a new media form. And the editors and readers were still really experimenting with it. Uh, And so I think the newspapers take on this dialogic form, right, where um, editors appear at least to be in conversation with their readers in terms of the way they're structuring their their invitation uh, for people to write letters, the ways in which they respond in these editorial notes, the way the writers themselves converse with one another, cite each other's letters, um, refer to the editor, et cetera. So in this way they become a really important virtual forum. And I think that thinking about this, this social component uh, is really uh, what was um important is understanding these these new practices of sociability uh that emerge in in the newspaper.
0: Yeah, it's um I think we as historians forget the human interaction aspect of history quite a bit. Um And human interaction doesn't necessarily have to take place someone staying in front of someone and having a um, verbal conversation. I think the written word um, is very much underestimated, not talked about, but it's very powerful. I think when someone takes the time, as in your last sentence of your book, says that your readers, they access from writing desks, dressing tables, cafes. They take the time to get a piece of paper, put pen in hand, and write down what they're thinking. That's intentional. It's purposeful. And it is a quest to want to be engaged in a platform that gives them a sense of um, self-esteem. Did you find as you were reading the letters that when people write them, because you can tell by word usage, the type of words that they use, what they were talking about. Did you find that you see this um, import of self-esteem, of confidence just to be able to sit there? Because everybody couldn't write during this time. Some people may have spoke a letter orally and had someone write it for them and send it for them, so did it give the reader, this actor in your book, a sense of confidence that they're able to communicate through the written word something that means something to them that's important to them?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think that in some cases, yes. right. I think one of the things that was so um, surprising and interesting about these letters is the extent to which people just Took it upon themselves to participate, right? They they wanted to be part of the conversation, uh, and um, just weren't willing to accept gatekeeping in uh, the cases where it was introduced. Uh, in my chapter on popular science, for example, a lot of the p- practitioners really were trying to say, "No, no, this is this is our space to talk about how ballooning works," um, and members of the public uh, that that weren't balloonists. Uh, nevertheless, wrote in and said that they had something to say, and they had an idea and wanted to to get that communicated uh, to um, the readership of the newspaper as well. And so, that um, uh, jostling, right, that social jostling and, and um, contentiousness, I think, was a characteristic and a very important characteristic of these newspapers as well. Um, more broadly, this sense of optimism um, and a desire to participate, I think, is something that. Uh, comes across in a variety of the subject matter in these newspapers. One of the things that I found is that uh, the idea that uh, resonated across this content was the importance of... fashioning and then communicating one's own authority. And there are a variety of ways in which writers did this, but I think that was really important for them. Uh, They spent time in their letters situating themselves as someone who ought to be listened to. Um, And there are a variety of ways in which one could do this. Um, In the case of the letters on uh, agriculture in particular, experience, right, one's own practical experience was very much um, central to the case that they made. Um, um, so it depends a little bit in terms of the subject matter on how they went about making that case, but across the letters, I think that really was what, uh, came out, uh, for, for me was the importance of, um, situating oneself as someone that ought to be listened to. Um, right. They develop
0: and their own, yeah, their own sense of expertise and what they were writing about, and I think that also went hand um, in your popular science um, about accountability to the professional. Just because you're a professional, and just because you say it's so, maybe it's not so, and the writing public is going to hold you accountable for the ideas and the thesis and the hypothesis that you put out, because maybe we're we're not feeling that we're not seeing that. And I think it's accountability also for the deputies in the national assembly, because they wrote back to their constituents, you know, we elected you sent you there. We didn't send you there to be in a vacuum. We sent you there to represent us and you need to be accountable and respectful enough to write back and let us know what is going on. So I think the dynamics of writing relationship is um, prevalent throughout your book, and you can see how the writing public, not so much the editors per se, but I'm gonna think the, I'm thinking and correct me if I'm wrong that the writers defined what. Expertise, responsibility, respect—what this information network was going to be.
1: Um, that's that's a really interesting um, point. Yeah, I think I think it was complicated. Uh, certainly, uh, the readers did fashion for themselves their own space uh, to a, be a part of a conversation. I do think we should note, though, that it was still a highly mediated one. Um, and I spent time in the, in the first chapter of the book trying to get at uh, the complex filtering that probably was happening. So certainly the editors are a presence, right? They were making some decisions about what to publish and what not to publish. Uh, and that's going on. Um, I also trace in the, in the introduction the way that censorship worked, and I think that's important to note as well, is there's probably information that we're not fully uh, able to access from these newspapers because of these uh, systems of censorship. That, too, was complex. Uh, many things did slip into print, um, um, either by someone looking the other way or by, you know, bureaucrats being too busy uh, to necessarily... Um, moderate every edition of these newspapers um so that's one component and then there's the challenge of just uh how the the post worked at this time so in that that first chapter i'm really interested in uh discussing this this uh filtering process that that happened and in some cases that there's some level of um we, we don't fully know what what didn't end up in print uh and i think knowing kind of the methodological limits of what we can know with these sources was really important to me as well.
0: This is such an interesting work. Um, so what's next for you? What's in your future? How are you going to expand upon this work? Um, tell, tell the listeners, what's in Dr. Bond's future talking about enlightenment and public opinion
1: Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm in the early stages of two new projects. Both were inspired by some of the findings in the writing public. So the, the first one is a micro history centered on Louise Carvalho. Uh, she was a woman in the world of publishing in the age of revolutions. And one of the things that surprised me very much in working on these, um, on the writing public was how many of the publishers of the newspapers I studied were women. women. Most of the women who published affiches were widows who led their husbands' printing businesses. Uh, But I was just fascinated by their presence uh, and their influence in in the general information newspaper publishing world. So Louise Carvalho is an interesting figure. She was a writer. She published translations. She wrote her own novel. Um, She began a massive collection of works written by women uh, in 1786, Um, And during the revolution, she founded and published a newspaper of her own and edited several others between 1789 and 91. Um, She and her husband were active members of the Cordelier Club. So I'm really interested in unpacking her um, own uh, political evolution during the revolution, but also really staying uh, interested in the role of women in the world of publishing before and during the French Revolution. That's one. The second project is a study of prints and medical authority focused on the inoculation campaigns in 18th century France. And one of the things that was surprising and really interesting to me about working on the writing public was the participation of doctors in the press. Uh, Doctors wrote more letters to the editor in the affiche uh, than did any other profession is kind of stunning and interesting right? to meet up that uh, was really important to um, unpack why they might be doing so. One of the topics they addressed was inoculation for smallpox. And so this project takes as its starting point the question of why doctors turn to general information newspapers. uh, Why are they bringing their case to the public to make uh, an argument for the merits and safety of inoculation and to dispel misconceptions? Um, So this project is really focused on how the case for inoculation was made uh, in print uh, in the 18th century.
0: Oh, that sounds interesting. Wow. And these were unanswered things that you found in the archives that you wanted to expand into research. Um, So it's the idea of being open to what the archives say to us and not go in and try to have the archives say something to us. We need to let the, listen to the archives. That sounds really interesting. I, I, I'm like you, doctors. Wow, I didn't think that doctors would have the time to write so many letters um, to editors. Um, but that then that kind of makes sense because that would be a good platform to reach the general public if they were reading the letters like they were, as you discussed. I mean, over 6,000 letters that you read, that's just still mind-boggling. That is just really mind-boggling. Well, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure talking to you and learning about your research. I wish you all the best in your research. Um, today, we had Dr. Elizabeth Andrews Bond talking about her book, The Writing Public, Participatory Knowledge Production and Enlightenment and Revolutionary France published by Cornell University 2021. We look forward to your next two works on women in publishing and doctors who wrote letters to the editors um, in regards to the inoculation process in 18th century France.
1: Have a great day. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being with you.